Well, good morning, everybody. Christ is risen. I'm not sure if I was unmuted or not, but and I can't hear you anyway, so I'm going to assume you all didn't leave me hanging there. Um, guys, I, I could barely sing this morning. I just had to, uh, I didn't, I didn't turn my video off because I had to just reach for Kleenex. I could just barely, barely take it together. So we'll see if I can even pull it together now. Um, I do have a sermon here ready, so we're going to try to get through this. What a gift to be with you, at least in this way. I'm just so grateful for uh, the technology that we have um, available to us. Ooh, didn't expect this. Just give me a sec. Okay. So this is such strange times. Uh, we've lived through uh, a holy week unlike any of us have ever experienced before. And certainly this is the weirdest context in, in which I've ever prepared at Easter homily. It's a strange time, it's a sad time. And uh, for all of us, at least on some level, it's a hard time. Uh, the world is not as it should be. And uh, on one hand, Peter was saying a little bit about this at the beginning. It, it kind of maybe doesn't seem quite as appropriate in this moment to shout, Christ is risen, or at least to shout it quite as loudly and enthusiastically as, as we usually do. In a sense, it kind of feels a little bit more authentic to linger a bit with the themes of Good Friday and Holy Saturday because death and grieving are still happening. Uh, because in-betweenness and unknowing will likely be our experience for a good while to come. For some of us, when we consider all that's happening, Easter may seem disingenuous, or we might kind of feel like, can I just skip it over it this year or delay it for a time? The world is not as it should be. So aren't we being a bit dishonest if we pretend that it is? But what if Easter Sunday isn't asking us to be inauthentic. And what if it never has? I love what poet Maggie Smith said. You are not betraying your grief by feeling joy. You are not being graded and you do not receive extra credit for being miserable 100% of the time. Find pockets of relief, even happiness when and where you can keep moving. So I, I originally had just one quote here, but then I came across another one that's just too good not to share. This one's by Kristen Lynn. She's the editor of the On Being Project, and some of you all going to want to screenshot this one. She said, a practice of gratitude is not about dismissing sadness, anger, fear, or confusion. Rather, it offers us the opportunity to see that we often experience multiple feelings at once, to welcome joy into the same places where we hold grief, to turn our attention to what is quietly growing and breathing day by day, which to our possible surprise includes ourselves. Both are possible. Both can coexist even within ourselves gratitude and sadness, grief and joy, love and anger, lament and celebration, death and resurrection. And in a world where things are not as they should be, both are needed. 
space for both is needed. I want to suggest that this is exactly the perspective that the biblical writers invite us into. That Easter Sunday is not a denial of the pain of Good Friday. That celebrating and believing in resurrection life does not mean diminishing, ignoring, or setting aside the reality of suffering. So let's just consider this together for a few moments through the lens of the Easter story uh, that we've already heard. And by the way, if you're not tuning in live, if you're listening to the podcast, please do open a Bible. Look at the first 10 verses of Matthew 28. In the Gospel eyewitness accounts, Easter morning happens in a place of death and decay. Easter morning, death and decay. In Matthew 28, the story opens with two women visiting a tomb. They've come to the place where the body of their dear friend and Messiah was laid. So in our imaginations, we're already being invited into a setting of somber and hushed reverence, a place of eerie silence. Has anyone been in a place that, where there's eerie silence at all these days? And as if a graveyard setting itself weren't enough to cast a pall over things, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were met there by a sound that shook the earth. And the sound was that of an angel coming down and rolling the giant stone away from the mouth of the tomb. Matthew tells us that the angel's robe was white and his appearance was bright like lightning. And the guards, which I think we can safely assume would have been alpha male types, true, true manly men, these guys were physically shaken and slammed to the ground. The NIV says they became like dead men. The message says they were scared to death. Now, it's interesting to me that nothing like that happened to the women. They were obviously frightened. We know this because the angel says, do not be afraid. But they weren't knocked on their butts like the tough soldier guys. Just an observation. Just going to leave space for laughter there because I assume it's uproarious wherever y'all are at. Well, what did the angel say? Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So notice the angel doesn't dismiss the women's fear. He acknowledges it's a real thing. I know you've come looking for the crucified Jesus. I know you're here because two days ago you watched someone you loved dearly be brutally tortured and killed and then laid here in this very tomb. I know. I know. God never writes people off who are facing fear. This is good to be reminded of in a time when there are so many fears being faced by people all over the world. Is anyone out there having trouble sleeping or staying focused? You can raise hands if you want. You can see each other. Anyone had feelings of helplessness or confusion or anger? Anyone feel they're just a tiny bit overexposed to media? Anyone feeling overwhelmed with alternating feelings of excitement, relief, curiosity? We're asking questions like, will my kids be okay? Will my parents and grandparents be okay? Will my healthcare professional or essential service friend, partner, or family member be okay? What about the baby I'm about to deliver? 
Will there be enough hospital beds and other medical supplies? Will, be, will we be okay financially? Will my business be able to survive this? When will a vaccine become available? How long will things be this way? It's the heart cry of the psalmist. How long? And what does a loving God do in the midst of this? I invite you to choose uh, to join me in choosing to trust this, that just as the angel said to the women, I know you're looking for the crucified Jesus, that God says to us, I know what you're going through. I see you. I love you. I know. God comes to us in the center of our fear and offers the presence of co-suffering love. That comes first. The God we know from Scripture, the God we know most fully in Christ, does not dismiss fear. But neither, neither does God want us to remain trapped or immobilized or controlled by it. Don't be like the manly man guards, in other words. It's absolutely okay to be afraid, but don't live your lives in the grip of fear. Don't let it knock you to the ground. Don't let it take you out. In times like this, it's very easy to give in to fear, to pull our emotional energy into fearfulness, to become consumed by the question of why, rather than accepting what is and focusing on what now. And what now is exactly what the angel leads the women into. He is not here. He's risen just as he said. In other words, this is the present situation. This is your new reality. And the just as he said is, of course, a gentle reminder that what's happened is something Jesus promised would happen, repeatedly, in fact. And there are times in the Gospels uh, when we recall Jesus saying, why are you all so slow to believe? Why is your memory so horrible? Oh, you of such little faith. But this is not one of those times. The angel doesn't berate the women. Listen to what he does say. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. Come and see. Go and tell. You will see. A whole lot of sermons could be preached from just these little phrases alone, but for time's sake, notice the repeated references within this short text to sight, seeing, and looking. It's by far the verb form that shows up most often. Look, see, behold. I want to suggest that the resurrection story invites our participation first as witnesses as those who see occurrence. It's as though the angel is saying, whatever else you do with this news, bear witness to it. See the occurrences of resurrection. Trust it. Tell people about it. That's exactly what they do. Verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Verse 8, you guys. Verse 8. Afraid, yet filled with joy. Do you see it there again? Both can coexist, even on Easter. 
Imagine being there that first Easter morning. Just as the sun is coming up, you and a dear friend arrive at the tomb of Jesus and you encounter an angel. The story then takes a dramatic turn from the world is not as it should be to yes, but things are not entirely as they seem. The angel speaks to you, tells you you're now living in an entirely new reality, one you never expected, you didn't think it was possible, one you didn't see coming but maybe should have. It's like being in the matrix and you've just taken the red pill. Your head is still spinning and so you rush to do the angel's bidding. You hurry away, running to find your other friends to share the news and you're afraid yet filled with joy. Of course you are. Of course they are. They're still very much in process. Reality hasn't totally settled in. Do you feel this pull within yourself? Have you seen it in others during this time? People who are aware of fear, both internally and externally, not denying it in the least, while at the same time, strangely drawn towards an unexplainable joy. By the way, one of my daughter Adriana's favorite songs right now is a newer one by Switchfoot called Joy Invincible. It's a good one for these times. Check it out, even if you think you're too cool for Switchfoot pausing for laughter again. Now, I've, I've got a growing number of people in my life who are either designers or have been uh, deeply influenced by design thinking. And uh, because that's the case, I'm kind of becoming one of them myself. And because that's true, I'm increasingly finding myself drawn to questions that begin uh, with the acronym HMW, which stands for How Might We? So I want to pose a how might we question to us this morning. This Easter, how might we hold space for ourselves and others to feel and name fear, and yet also open to the promise and possibility of resurrection joy? How might we hold space for ourselves and others to feel and name fear and yet also open to the promise and possibility of resurrection joy? This may be a good time to remind us that what we're heading into is a season that many parts of the church observe, not just a day for Easter, but a whole season known as Eastertide. So if we think of these next, it's actually, I think, 50 days right up till Pentecost. And so to think of this season, this Eastertide season, how might we do this? Let's come back to the text. And here's where things get really interesting. So the women are hearing away, afraid, filled with joy. They run to tell the disciples and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus himself shows up. It's another thing they didn't see coming. They didn't expect this new reality to be confirmed again so quickly. No wonder Jesus' first words after saying, hey, were again, do not be afraid. Even after seeing him, coming to him, clasping his feet and worshiping him. For a few months now, ever since I knew I'd be bringing the Easter sermon this year, I've been remembering and reflecting on a moment from a retreat I got to participate in this past fall. In one session, my friend Brad Jerzak 
was speaking mainly about Jesus as he does. And during the Q&A time, someone put up their hand and said, what's your response to what some might call Christian atheism? People who like Jesus more or less want to practice the way of Jesus, but can't or won't accept the faith claims. And the question asker uh, had in mind things like virgin birth, Jesus being raised from the dead. And here's what Brad said in response. My faith claim includes a resurrection. The ethics of Jesus are great, but they don't solve the root problems caused by the fear of death. So much of our bad behavior and ethics are based on that. Without the resurrection, Christian faith is just an ideology, and you can't run to an ideology for comfort, for relationship, for encounter. And here's my paraphrase of what Brad said. My faith requires resurrection because you can't clasp the feet of an ideology. There's a lot more we could say about what Brad said, and we'll come back to a bit of that, but I want to return to the question that preceded it. I don't know if any of you uh, struggle similarly with the faith claims of Christianity, be it the virgin birth, the ascension, the resurrection, talked about this a little bit when we went to, uh, through the Apostles' Creed series, and I, man, I for sure have at various points. Much ink has been spilled trying to prove the resurrection, that Jesus literally physically died and that Jesus was literally raised from death in bodily form. Now, I happen to believe it's true, very much so, but I don't feel a compulsive need to prove it. Most days I'm fine to take it on faith. Now, having said that, if I were pressed with the question, why do you believe in the resurrection? How would I answer? I haven't been to the empty tomb. I wasn't with the two Marys that early Sunday morning, nor was I with the other disciples that Jesus appeared to, the ones on the road to Emmaus, for example. I do trust the historicity of scripture. I think there's sufficient evidence to suggest that the people described in these pages did exist, that these stories really happened, that there was someone named Jesus Christ who walked the earth in human form, that he taught and healed people, that he did miracles, that he was crucified and died a physical death, that he was buried and resurrected in bodily form. Beyond all that, though, what would I say? What would you say? Why do you believe in the resurrection? I reached out to Dr. Jerzak a bit more this past week, and he pointed me towards St. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers. Athanasius said, The meaning of this event lies not primarily in the fact that we will be resurrected someday, but that the resurrection means Christ is not was risen. And so we relate to a living, indwelling person within, not just a historical figure. Brad told me how another respected scholar and teacher, Fleming Rutledge, has shifted her language from personal relationship to having a living connection with Jesus. From personal relationship to living connection, which Brad noted is even better language than encounter because it need not be dramatic or episodic. It is ongoing life with the living one. And Brad went on to say this, you don't prove the resurrection by going to the empty tomb. It is demonstrated in this living connection that functions not only in us, 
but among us. One of the main reasons I believe in the resurrection is that I see evidence of this living connection in the way you are living your lives. The world is not as it should be, but things are not entirely as they seem. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign and assurance that all will be well, that everything will one day be put right. N.T. Wright speaks of the resurrection as the beginning of the putting right moment of the world. And as followers of Jesus, as those who have been raised with Christ, as Paul puts it in Colossians, present tense, not will one day be, we have been raised with Christ. So because that's true, we live in the in-between. We borrow from the energy of Jesus' resurrection and we steward that energy towards putting things right however we can in the here and now. We don't just sit around and wait for the final putting right to happen. We practice resurrection in anticipation of the day when God in Christ will ultimately put all things right. Our celebrations of Easter, whether in the midst of a pandemic or not, must always take into account the ongoing reality of suffering. It has to take into account our in-betweenness. But at the same time, just as the women could be afraid yet filled with joy, the resurrection of Jesus calls us to a future hope where all suffering will in fact cease. A future where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, and no more death. Easter is the death of death. That is what we anticipate, and that is what we celebrate. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.